Welcome to the SAS Growth for Good podcast. Uh, this is the very first episode and I am delighted to welcome uh, Thomas Smalley, who is the founder of FE International. This is the podcast for SaaS entrepreneurs who are passionate about positive change in themselves, in their teams and in the wider world. Good morning, Thomas. Thanks. Thanks for having me on, Rob. Good morning. You are very welcome. Um, so as everybody is surely aware, we are in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. And uh, I want to talk about this as little as possible um, because we're all sick to death of it. But uh, I am interested to get your thoughts, Thomas, on the implications uh, for the M&A market, for mergers and acquisitions. Um be that in SaaS, in e-commerce, um, or or in the wider M&A market, and if you've got any inclination about where that's likely to go. Yeah, it's been um, interesting so far. So for perspective, last year we closed just over 150 deals. So we do a lot of a lot of deal flow. We're constantly working on we have multiple clients at, at all times. Uh, February was a, a record all-time month for us in the last 10 years. Um, March was actually also pretty good. So activity is still pretty strong. The, the nature of what we do, for those who don't know, is we sell SaaS, e-commerce, and content-based businesses. So the vast majority of businesses we sell can be run entirely remotely. Um, so from an operational perspective, I guess they're an extremely desirable business model right now because they can be run from anywhere. Uh, that's not to say some businesses haven't been affected by Corona, like just because you can operationally still run your business a lot of customers and clients may well have been um, affected uh, so we have seen some some the businesses we're working on some have had a like a relatively slow uh, march and probably expect to see that continue into April um, but activity from buyers is still pretty strong um, you tend to find like regardless of what's going on sometimes events like this cause like some people to completely drop out of the market and not want to buy at all. And, but then there's also another group who previously were not in the market at all, but now will be. So for example, if you had your money, say you have a million dollars and you've had it in an S and P 500 index fund for the last 10 years, you've not really had to do anything and you've been making quite a nice return every year. Uh, so now those returns have, well, at least temporarily dried up. A lot of those people are now saying, well, where else can I generate a return on my investment? Um, that's probably like buying a business. Um, so yeah, temporarily, we definitely had a, we had a, about a two week period that we're past now, and um, in that time, there was a little bit of disruption just because a lot of people, personally, like for me, I'm usually in an office every day. Um, right now, kind of, I'm in my apartment, so it's. For, I think for a lot of people, they have a bit of an uncomfortable work environment, at least short term. And a lot of buyers we work with also have kids and most schools are currently cancelled. So speaking to a lot of buyers on a one-on-one basis, a lot of those people have been like extremely disrupted because they're not used to having their kids at home running around screaming, disrupting calls and whatever it might be. Um, we have noticed this week, um, we're about what three weeks into US lockdown. San Francisco has been on lockdown for about three weeks. Some cities are not not on lockdown yet. Right. Um, 
it's beginning to pick up again now because I think people have kind of got used to the the new normal. So I know like from a personal perspective, I now have a setup, I have like my monitors, I have everything that I'm used to having in the office. But in week one, it was like, oh, should I use should I use my laptop? Should I have my PC? Should I have a monitor? Do I sit on my kitchen table or the <laughs> the dining room table? And I think most people are are the are the same from that perspective. So yeah, overall, I mean, I think we thought there might be a little bit more of an effect than there actually has been, but deals are still happening. Um, particularly now you've got through that like very uncertain period where a lot of people just got really scared. I think now people have just accepted the the temporary new normal. And most people, particularly in this industry, have adjusted fine. It's much less disruptive than a lot of other industries. And most people still have kind of income. Uh, I guess like, we're very fortunate and privileged from that perspective. Yeah, definitely. It, it is a lot more protect, protected than a lot of other industries. Um, but like you say, we've certainly seen clients who uh, maybe are less business critical, uh, have seen subscribers drop off and, and users drop off in that early first two weeks. Um, do you want to wheel back a little bit and, and dive into your background and tell us where you started out? and uh, how you got into mergers and acquisitions for, for SaaS e-commerce um, and, and how you ended up before you started FE International uh, arriving at that point. Sure, yeah. So I guess to give a little bit of an overview of what we do today, um, I started the company in 2010. So uh, just under 10 years ago, we started in May 2010. So about yeah, 10 years ago, um, at the time, I was at university or college, if you're a, an American listener, um, and I did a business degree. At the time, we were just coming, ironically, out the back of the last recession. So traditionally, people that did business degrees would go into uh, banking, accounting, consulting, something very similar to that. Uh, so the vast majority of the peers I went to university with went into investment banks. They went into all of those those companies. Um, I think I decided that the corporate life was not for me. It wasn't that I didn't want to work. I just didn't really like the constraints of a corporate environment. Um, so for about, while I'd been at university, I'd spent a couple of years, I'd call it messing around. It was definitely not a serious business or a serious thing, trying to figure out ways to make money online or just make money in general, like the classic entrepreneur story of, wasn't necessarily selling lemonade but you name it I would try and sell it um so I started out with in this industry at least selling or trying to buy and sell domains so just straight up domain names uh, I quickly realized that was a terrible industry 10 years on I've still not figured out how that industry works the challenge I've always found with domains is valuing it on a consistent basis is extremely difficult and it very much is the cliche like it's worth what someone's willing to pay. Um, so you could, to one person, a domain could be worth a hundred dollars to someone else. It could be worth $10,000. Whereas with a business, they are much more consistent in terms of valuation. So it might be, we think it's worth a million dollars. One buyer thinks actually the number is 1.1 and someone else thinks 800,000 that is. So the range is much, much narrower than something like a, a domain where you would get all sorts of different ranges. So figured out domains didn't work. 
And then I kind of stumbled into websites, established websites that were making money through different sources, advertising, affiliate income, reselling. Back then, you go back 10 years, like SaaS was definitely not anywhere near as mainstream as it was now. Mm-hmm. So I don't think I even really knew what SaaS was. And the, the, the vast majority of software products were still sold like a one-time license and they were still downloadable. So it might be you pay $100, you get a lifetime license or you get an annual license. Some people had figured out you could charge like an extra $50 a year for support on a recurring basis. Um, so there were some SaaS companies out there, but if you're starting out in the industry today, you'd have no idea what it was like back then. Um, so I started out with really small websites, figured out you could buy and sell them. Um, and you were just talking. buying and selling. You weren't building websites yourself. You weren't no, I'm building those businesses and still, selling them on. Again, 10 years on, completely technically inept. I can just about <laughs> log into WordPress and like edit something, but I can't write a line of code. Um, unfortunately, I have people who work for us who, who can, but I was definitely never, never technical. But I'd figured out enough how you can effectively just repackage and reposition something to, to sell it to a buyer which is effectively now what we do as an M&A firm, just at significantly more on a formal and complex level. Um, but I was literally taking $100 or £100, whatever currency you want to use, turning it into 500 and taking that 500 turning it into 1000 right. Um So I'd done that for a couple of years beforehand. And then when I graduated, I decided I didn't want a job. So I said to myself, okay, if I can make $100,000 in revenue in 12 months, I would add a couple of job offers on the table I deferred them a year and I said, okay, if I can make a hundred thousand dollars in revenue, I will not take, I'll not take one of those jobs. Um, so that's what I did. I thought, well, what's the quickest way to make a hundred thousand dollars with my knowledge? I didn't have any money. I didn't have kind of friends or family with money to give me or lend me or that I could otherwise get my hands on. And obviously getting a bank loan, basically impossible as a kid who's just graduated university coming out the back of a, a recession um so i launched a, a course or a book with a members area teaching people basically i just wrote everything that i learned about buying and selling websites in a course and it was useful for people who wanted to learn how to make a little bit of extra money uh people who already had a website and maybe wanted to sell it someone who's interested in buying uh lots of different i guess i had lots of different audiences um so that course did quite well i guess it was really just a bit lucky it just took off got a bit of traction at the time companies like us today didn't exist so if you had a website and you wanted to sell it you really didn't have that many options Um, were you approaching business owners directly and and managing deals that way or or were you doing it through marketplaces at that um, yeah but back then you didn't really have marketplaces as such you had a lot of forums like forums many people don't really use forums now it's like facebook groups and stuff like that but back then it was forums there were some small marketplaces where you could buy and sell um but yeah you, you name it i probably tried it to reach reach buyers um but either way the course took off and i thought okay well it's how i'm gonna make all my money just selling courses um that didn't happen i mean it, it it did okay but what happened is people off the back of the course would come to me and they said hey thomas i've um i've gone through your course i've completed it i actually own a business that makes thousand dollars a month um can you like but i'm really busy can you help me sell my business 
so I was like, okay, well, so I'm just doing it for them. Even though I had a business degree, and I think in hindsight, this seems extremely stupid, it didn't really occur to me what I was doing. I just thought I was helping people sell. So I would take a commission. I think back then I was charging, I don't know, five or 10%, small amount. I said, okay, well, if I don't sell it, don't pay me. Uh, if I do sell it, you do pay me. So it was kind of the ultimate merit-driven business. And I feel like if you're offering services and you only get paid if you're successful, um, it didn't really feel bad about the fact that I was kind of figuring out as I went along back then. Um, and neither did they, because they were like, well, let's give the kid a chance. If he fails, whatever. Um, and if he doesn't fail and he sells my business, then that's great. Uh, so that's what I did. Uh, the first deal I did, I think, was about $18,000. Wow. So from memory, I got paid about 1800 And I think I'd spent out of pocket probably about $1,000 of my own money, like promoting the business, like trying to find buyers, posting on forums. It might be like $50 to list, whatever it, it might be. Um, like I said, back then, companies like ours didn't really exist, or those that did were not very good, honestly. So off the back of that, there just was a compounding effect of word of mouth. People started to talk. Business owners liked to chat. So I started getting referrals in. People were like, hey, speak to Thomas. He can sell your business for you. So for the first couple of years, I don't even think, people don't really believe me today, but I don't even think I had a website for the first two years. <laughs> Here's my email address. Email me. I, I didn't bother building an email list. All the really basic mistakes today that now I would tell people you absolutely should do all of these things like you have to have a, a nice website and build an email list i didn't do any of that i was just making money by selling these selling these sites for a, a while um and then i decided to make it a bit more of a formal service uh in 2012 um my current business partner ismail joined as he's now ceo um but he he joined uh has well, acquired 50% of the business. So there's two of us today, we're still 50-50. We don't have any outside outside funding. Um, we went to university together. He had gone off into banking down the correct path. I'd gone down the wrong path, which is <laughs> start your own thing. He joined and he was like, we'd known each other for a while. And he was like, Thomas, you're an idiot. What are you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm doing all this stuff. I'm making all this money selling. I was selling, we were still doing lots of different things. So I was still selling courses still buying and selling sites for ourselves. Um, I think also at that stage, we had invested in another business. So we had like put a thousand dollars in, which is probably my life savings at the time into a business that was making a few hundred a month. So lots of fingers and lots of pies. And he came and said, Thomas, what are you doing? You make all of your money from helping people sell their business, but you're spending none of your time in it. So 2012, we, by then we had a website. It's still not a very good website, but at least works. And the nature of the industry, because it's word of mouth, people often look at our website and laugh and say, "Well, that's that's stupid. How can you how can you make kind of millions a year and sell hundreds of millions of dollars of businesses with a bad website?" But in reality, if you go to a big investment bank, if you have a billion dollars, you're not going on their website and browsing what they have for sale. So the vast majority, even today, the vast majority of work we do is via email. So what you see publicly, yes, technically you can go on our website, browse what we have for sale and request information. Mm -hmm. But 99% of our work's done 
email, phone, in person. So you can't really see it from there. But either way, back then we had a website. So it's like, if you want to sell your business, you can now fill out a form versus emailing me to probably what was my Gmail address or whatever it might have been. Um, <laughs> so did all that. And we then basically entirely focused on selling businesses. That was, and since then, that's basically been all of our revenue. Right. Um, today, we do invest in some other businesses. We've, for example, we've acquired a conference. Uh, we launched a, a magazine called SaaS Mag. Um, but I guess we're fortunate that we're big enough and profitable enough that we can invest in lots of different, lots of different things. Um, so business has begun to diversify but still the vast majority of our revenue is from uh, the M&A side so selling a business and then getting paid when we sell it so things have developed a lot but it very much started I guess by accident then we pivoted and focused and then it snowballed with the the word of mouth Um, and even today 10 years in the vast majority of our business is still word of mouth if you're going to trust someone to sell your business for hundred thousand a million twenty million dollars you probably want to get a recommendation not many people a big source of business for us is not google ads people don't really find services like us from from ads you're generally looking for a a peer recommendation yeah definitely so you're you're now at a stage where you've overseen thousands of of sales of SaaS e-commerce content businesses yeah we're at about around 800 probably about 850 right now and what sort of what sort of level do you tend to get involved at what what size of business would you would you start becoming relevant for um and is there an upper limit to it as well uh so we'll generally speaking we'll have a conversation with anyone assuming they're making some money um we don't actually have a strict minimum but we do have a minimum fee so generally speaking businesses below around thirty thousand dollars in valuation uh do not make sense to 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 work with us uh so about thirty thousand is about the lower end of what we work on mm-hmm. um and then you can go significantly up uh some of our bigger deals at the moment are more in like the 50 million dollar range uh and there's a real there's a real broad range in there we have multiple seven and eight figure deals and then we also have five and six figure deals um so we're very much industry specialists we don't necessarily a lot of traditional banks or investment banks or m a firms will if you went to them with less than a million dollars in revenue or 10 million dollars they would laugh at you and say haha no one wants to buy your business so effectively we found a nice kind of market share for ourselves in a market that previously didn't exist because the big M&A firms didn't want to touch it which is at the time sub 10 million dollars that's now probably more like sub 100 million or sub 50 million dollars for us um but it was if you have a business above a couple of thousand in valuation you shouldn't be selling it yourself on a on a marketplace you should be hiring someone so there's been a whole market we've actually created for ourselves that the big firms don't want to service and it's not relevant for the the small the smaller kind of firms or or marketplace um so that's kind of where we stuck but we have gradually gone more and more up market to the stage where even if a bigger M&A firm or a firm that focuses on bigger deals might speak to you the infrastructure we've created I mean we have just over 50 people around the world 
the infrastructure we've created is pretty difficult to compete with if you're an M&A firm that does two deals a year, even if they're 100 million each. Because for that, you probably have a, a small team, you probably can't pay them a salary and you're very much reliant on that one deal. Whereas for us, we obviously do care. We have a very high success rate and that's a really important metric to us. But it doesn't really make any difference if one particular deal doesn't go ahead because we have lots of others closing all the time. Yeah. Uh, I think I read somewhere that your success rate is about 94%, which is astonishing. Yeah. Um, and, and that you work on a commission basis as well, I also find really interesting. Um, mm-hmm. What kind of process do you go through to to make sure that somebody's a good fit before you even start entertaining working with them? This is something that we're playing around with a lot as well, is actually getting getting a value fit. Not People t- typically advise when you hire an employee you want to you want to hire someone based on value and based on performance as well um we're also looking at extending that to clients is that something similar that that you go through um to to be able to keep that high success rate or or is it how do you do that yeah it's a difficult one because when you're starting out you obviously want as many clients as possible Hmm. and then i guess at all stages in your business you want as many as possible so when in the early days we were I wouldn't say we had no vetting process, but if you wanted to work with us, you would probably get a personal call from me trying to persuade you to work with us. Um, these days, I mean, I guess we had the we had, did have the benefit of word of mouth, and generally, while this is not a foolproof plan, if you get referrals, they're generally relatively high quality, and you're reasonably unlikely to be dealing with someone who is dishonest, a bad person, really awkward to work with or, or whatever that might be so I guess somewhat the fact we are heavily word of mouth driven um or kind of people hear us on a podcast or whatever you might listen to this and say I like this guy or I don't like this guy so you kind of naturally filter out the people who don't want to contact us in the first place because they've already decided they don't they don't like me which is which is fine and that's really what we want or well, I don't personally do not want that, but I want people to <laughs> at least have an understanding of what they're signing up for before they come to us. So firstly, where the leads come from definitely makes a difference. If all your leads come from paid ads, you're going to have a completely different dynamic with your customer because they probably also filled out 20 different forms they found from different ads and they're going to want you to be like calling them constantly being like, hey, work with us, we're the best and have some sort of pitch. We don't really have that because people come to us and say, well, here's what we sold. We're the best in the industry at this, this, and this. You can either work with us or you can go somewhere else and then come back to us when you're not successful, which is usually the case. Um, to maintain our high success rate that we do, we are very strict of what we take on. So we ask a lot of questions about a, a business. Um, and we also ask a lot of questions, not necessarily about the individual or the kind of team we're working with, but we want to make sure just really basic stuff like, do we like them? Because we only get paid if a business sells, we need to make sure that the team actually want to work with that person or that team for the month, three months or six months or however, depending on the size of the business, it might take on the higher end of that to close. If it's a smaller business, it might take less time. Um, but we spend a huge amount of time and resource out of pocket 
all of our team are salaried. We don't pay our team commission only or anything like that. So we are physically investing money to onboard and vet any business. So we want to make sure that we like the seller. We think they're honest. We like the business. We think it's a good fit for our buyer network. And that's definitely something we've refined with time. When we started out, we were reasonably broad with what, what we take on. Now we know exactly what is a good fit and what isn't a good fit. So we wouldn't say we get negative feedback as such. But we get a lot of people who are frustrated that we won't work with them because we say, sorry, this isn't a fit or we'll go a little bit through the process. And then if we're not comfortable, we'll just say, we'll just say no. Um, and obviously they've not paid us anything. So in my mind, it's like, well, if you haven't paid us anything, yes, you might have spent a bit of time, but people would be much more frustrated if we lied to them and said, yeah, this is a good fit. And then in three months time, we've made literally no progress. So saying yes to appease people early on in the process might seem like the best thing to do in any business, but if they're not a good fit, you're just doing them a disservice, yourself a disservice, and you're going to create a lot of like reputational issues for yourself down the line. Whereas telling people something they don't want to hear early on might be a tough conversation, particularly if you're new to running a business and maybe it's not something you're kind of used to doing in your personal or professional life. Uh, but that is a very important thing. Uh, so for us, as time's gone on, we've definitely refined what a good fit client is for, for us. Uh, and then we're also just like very strict. We follow our process. If it's not a fit, we tell people it's not a fit. Um, so part of the reason we have such a high success rate is we only take on about 1% of people that come to us in the first place. We say no to the vast majority. Um, and then in terms of high success rate, because we know it's a good fit, we do a lot of vetting up front. There's not usually that many surprises once the, the process starts. So the vast majority of businesses do sell. And because we follow the same process over and over again, we're not really relying on any randomness or anomalies to get lucky and, and sell a business. It's very much the process works every time. We do it the same way every time. Yes, there's obviously an element of some businesses need a slightly different approach, but it's basically the same thing every time, which really leads to a an eventual high success rate. Okay, so I'm going to ask this question in a slightly roundabout way because I think a lot of people would be interested just to know what makes <laughs> what makes the perfect business for a for a successful sale but i'm actually interested in the businesses that come to you and you look at them uh the nuts and bolts of their business uh and the hundreds thousands that you've looked at and said no that's not that's not a good fit either now or um or or just in general and which what makes a business fall through the cracks i guess is a question um, because these are these are transactions that most people are likely to see once in their life, less than a handful of times in their life, if that. So yeah, no, that, that, yeah, that's exactly right. Well, we have a lot of people who will buy or sell multiple times. The vast majority of people, it's one. Probably can do one big deal in your your life, maybe a couple. Um, and you, if you have not done one, you've probably not really had any other than very third hand information from what you read in TechCrunch which is probably not really the reality of what really happened in the deal yeah. um, behind the scenes. Um, 
So we turn away businesses for a lot of reasons. Businesses that are not sellable, probably the most common one is just not making any money. You, I don't know, let's say you're making 5,000 a month in revenue and you're spending 50,000 a month and burning cash. In the, I mean, ironically, I'm in San Francisco right now, but in Silicon Valley, in the VC world, that's quite common to burn cash. In the buying a profitable business space that we operate in, that's not desirable. So people are not buying those businesses. Uh, through us, at least, we just don't take them on. Um, businesses that are declining, we generally don't take on as well. Um, most suppliers we work with want businesses that are growing. So if it's kind of on a trajectory downwards, we don't want to work with it. And that's often when when people think about selling. No one really thinks about selling when their business is going up, but that's really when you should be thinking about selling. You shouldn't be coming to someone when it's already started declining because mm-hmm. no one wants to buy that business. Um, so, I mean, the vast majority of businesses, if they are, and this is relatively uncommon, so it sounds really obvious and really stupid, but the vast majority of businesses are not doing this. If you are growing consistently, you are profitable. Firstly, you're in like a very small percentage of businesses that are actually doing that. Um, and then assuming if you have a SaaS product, for example, Assuming the code is well documented or there's a way that a, an engineer or a code or a program or whatever you want to call them is able to take over and understand the kind of code, be able to run it from a technical perspective, and it's not going to be obsolete in the next few months. From that perspective, it's probably fine. Assuming the churn is not some crazy number, and even if it is, it's probably usually churn is most reflective of your kind of customer demographic not usually of the business itself interesting so once you look at enough businesses i could probably guess the churn rate of a business without knowing anything about it other than who the target customer is um so yes how how good your product is is also important but it's not anywhere near as important as who your average customer is if you're targeting big enterprises and you're targeting or you're targeting freelancers you can literally guarantee if you looked at 100 businesses with those two separate client demographics, you could literally guarantee that the freelancers will always churn at a higher rate than the enterprises. Um, and there's lots of different examples like that. So while churn does not necessarily make a business unsellable, I guess it's a somewhat obvious, but the lower your churn is, the more likely it is to sell, the more likely you are to get a, a higher valuation. Um, Businesses that are really reliant on a owner can be quite challenging to sell. Um, but that does really, really depend. In the SaaS and software space, that tends not to be a huge issue other than with the code itself. Um, but like I said, if you document it and someone can take over, it's usually not a problem. Other than that, obviously, they are paying for a, the customers are paying for a software product, not you as an owner. So intrinsically, the SaaS business model is very sellable in general. Whereas if you have a uh, a blog, for example, a lot of people create blogs about themselves. They might even use their own name, their own pictures, uh, all sorts of different things like that. Those can be a little bit more tricky. And while it's not unsellable, if you have a whole business built around your own personal name, um, it can be quite difficult. So it really does depend on lots of different factors. And it also really changes depending on how big your business is. So for example, in my business, 
still very reliant on myself and my business partner, but we have a team of 50. So if both of us left and we sold the business and someone came in and they had no idea what they were doing, the team and whoever came in would probably be fine running the business and they would probably say, hey, Thomas, you're stupid. Look at all this stuff you're doing wrong. They would fix it and they would be happy. But if you go back seven years ago when it was just me plus a couple of kind of freelancers, that is not a very sellable business because it was basically entirely based around me and my expertise. There was no real processes. There was no team. There was no anything. So in the service space or the blog space, whatever, businesses like that are really challenging to sell. SaaS intrinsically doesn't have a lot of those challenges. Uh, so generally speaking, if you have a SaaS business and it's profitable and it's growing, it's probably sellable almost all of the time. Um, and yes, there are exceptions, but if you check those two boxes, then you're probably fine. Fascinating. And there's a thousand questions <laughs> in what you've just said. Um, let's say uh, a business comes to you, it's growing, it's profitable, their infrastructure solid, they're not solely dependent either on the brand of the founder um or or the the intrinsic knowledge of of the ceo um at that stage you you're keen to work with them you you think you can you can help them um you mentioned earlier that you you tend to operate out of your network what does the process look like on on the sell side um for you guys do you would you work out of a black book? Do you have a network that, that you know quite well in the SaaS space or the e-commerce space that you'd go to and say, look, I've got this perfect fit for you. Um, are you interested and approach them directly or do you, is it more of a, a scattergun sort of approach? Yes. If, if I guess if we skip all other parts of our process and we get to the stage where the business is listed or ready for sale, um, we have a three-step marketing process. Right. So we start with a very specific list of buyers that are in our network, effectively, who have expressed interest, acquired, made offers on, or if otherwise we think are a very good fit, which is usually, for any particular business, it's usually about 1% of our total network have very specifically said they want a business that meets the profile of the business you are selling. Uh, so we start with those buyers and we call that like pre-marketing. So we go out to them, say, hey, look, we've got this business, perfect fit for you based on what you've told us. Uh, hasn't gone out to the whole network of tens of thousands of buyers yet. Are you interested? Um, and generally speaking, that gets people moving quite quickly because if it is truly is a good fit for them, um, we have a reputation for selling businesses quickly and efficiently. So if you're slow and you say, hey, Thomas, yeah, I'll look at this in, well, not me, someone in the team, hey, I'll look at this in two weeks' time. In two weeks' time, the business might not necessarily have sold, but it, it could have done. Um, so if it's a good fit, those buyers tend to move quite quickly. Hmm. Then we go out to a process where we send it to our whole entire network, which is usually just a much more casual pitch, which is, hey, we've got this new business. We don't know exactly what you're looking for or you haven't told us, but it might be a fit. Uh, and then often at that stage, even though it's anonymized, we do get a lot of business from people who then forward it to friends. Again, so talking about like a lot of stuff that's done via email. 
mm. people forward it to their friends and like, oh, hey, Rob, you might like this one. Take a look. I guess similar to if you're selling like a house, I'm sure people send links to right move or zoop or whatever it is all the time to their friends very similar with businesses um it's difficult for us to track that but there's definitely an element of like the network effect of people tell their friends and forward it around um and we quite often get people who come in and say oh my my friend rob forwarded this to me can you give me some more information and then the third part of the process and this this is a bit that's a bit more customized depending on the business we don't have a set approach we then do outreach to specific buyers we think will be a good fit for the business and we generally work with the the seller at least at the start to put that list together we don't get them to do it but we'll say well are you comfortable with us sending it to these five competitors or these 10 private equity firms or whatever that might be um for smaller businesses we do do that but the buyer tends to come from our existing network as deals get bigger into the generally $10 million and above range, usually we have to go a little bit further afield. So that does require some outreach, reaching out to the right kind of um, buyers for something like that. Um, so that's, yeah, three-step process. Steps one and two always happen. Step three mostly happens, but that's the part that's a bit more creative and we might try uh, different things depending on the, the business. But the rest of it is pretty much a, a set process that deal by deal doesn't really change. Uh, and that's also important because their buyers behaviorally get used to how you work. If you're constantly changing the process, it's difficult for, for buyers. Um, so that's how we do it. You might not like the process as a buyer or you might really love it, but the fact it's consistent is usually a big win for, for most people, particularly if you've got, millions of dollars to invest you don't want to be messing around let's say you are you're looking at acquiring for the first time either as as a board of um of a SaaS business um as uh, an individual investor or or as part of a a fund what are the biggest mistakes that you see people make on that side um, the first time they go through that process? Yeah, I think probably the, the biggest mistake people make, and this is a little bit counterintuitive, um, is they start out with a search that's way too narrow. So they'll say, we only want the, the X of Y industry that has revenue in this range profitability in this range so they'll give you a list of like 10 10 10 like very specific criteria and while you should definitely should have criteria and be disciplined around that criteria the odds of you finding a business that check every box in your 10 point list is when I say say slim to none that would be hyperbole but very unlikely so my advice to first-time buyers regardless of how much cash you have is start with a relatively broad search. That doesn't mean if you have $10 million to invest, you should go look at a $100,000 e-commerce business. But if you're looking in the SaaS space, maybe you should look at a $2 million business or a $1 million business. Um, and you never know, something might be a really good fit. Um, so there could be lots of opportunities. So starting with a broad search and then narrowing it is better than going the other way around. Um, 
because a lot of people what you tend to find if they have really narrow criteria and we see this all the time and people you can tell them i could go on a thousand podcasts and say this but people still come through with the same uh narrow criteria they're the same buyers that in 2015 were still following up with us with the same criteria saying <laughs> hey i'm looking to buy this business and that's fine some people like don't necessarily have a requirement to make an acquisition and they they will if the per- perfect business comes along um but my experience is they probably won't or that might take years um it's similar to like with most things in life when is the right time to do something like quit your job and start a business there probably never is a perfect time it's the same with buying a business like if you actually want to do it just do it like most people if you're intelligent and you buy a good enough business and you work hard you should be able to be successful with basically anything you you buy um it's part of the reason people come to us in the first place is because not, not that we can guarantee it but compared to trying to find something yourself the average business we sell is much higher quality than the average business you can find yourself or people are trying to sell themselves um if you buy it and you run it properly you're probably i mean it sounds really stupid and really simple but you're probably going to make money um so yeah start start broad narrow it down with time if you start too narrow quite honestly you're probably never going to buy anything unless you get lucky and i've never built my business based on luck so i definitely don't suggest other people do either is there is there a real challenge uh with when you immediately acquire a business or your business has been acquired uh let's say into a into another organization for for argument's sake um about the loss of business immediately after after that transaction i think i've heard somewhere that going into a deal um where where you're looking to acquire uh, you should expect tw- say 20% of of the business to 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 kind of fall away post uh post deal post merger or post acquisition is that is that a myth is that realistic um how can you minimize that if so uh i mean i would say you definitely hear that in like big company acquisitions where someone like Adobe, for example, buys a company, they just don't bother running it and it just dies. It happens all the time with big acquisitions. In this space, people are generally buying profitable businesses to run them and make money. So most people take the acquisition, say more seriously. And it's probably, if you're investing your only million dollars into buying a business, you're probably going to work harder than Adobe buying something for 10 million or whatever it might be. So you definitely hear some horror stories in the bigger M&A world where they do a deal and, and nothing happens. Uh, in our space, I'd say if you had not any drop in the first month, you'd probably expect a small drop. Although if it's SaaS, that shouldn't happen. It should be recurring. You should be taking over subscriptions directly. She shouldn't really notice any, should literally notice no drop. And if you do, that probably implies that the seller had some personal relationships with clients and is trying to steal them away so if you use the right contract and you have a non-compete agreement a non-solicit agreement that shouldn't happen um but you're right though the first 90 days at least post-sale are definitely the most important 
Um, ideally, you shouldn't lose any revenue, uh, particularly in SaaS. In a service business, you would expect there to be a drop just because it takes time to figure out how everything works. But that really does depend a bit on like how big the team is. If the owner's already absentee and not really doing anything, then transitioning to a new owner shouldn't really be anything. If the owner's the one on every single sales call, then yes, it probably would be a, a short-term drop. But you should see that immediately jump back up after a month. So the first 90 days are paramount. We spend a lot of time with buyers and sellers as part of the negotiation, establishing what that process should look like, how long it should take, what the seller has to do to transition successfully. Um, and ultimately, it's in the seller's best interest, regardless of how the deal is structured, for the business to do well after it's sold. Uh, and the same for the buyer, obviously, and also the same for us. So it's kind of the three main parties involved all have an incentive for the business to do well. Um, but no, I'd say in general, to very directly answer your question, I'd say it is a myth that it should drop 20%. Um, the vast majority of deals we have don't have, don't have that, or definitely shouldn't have that. And if they do, there's some other problem. Um, but you definitely hear stories of that happening elsewhere, particularly with bigger companies doing acquisitions where there might be a, a big team that comes with the business and there can be all sorts of cultural and logistical challenges with a, a bigger organization taking over a, a smaller company where maybe it can be often in companies, it can be something really minor, like you could take over a company and they could slightly change the benefit package that the previous employees got. And you never really know what that can do to kind of team retention or happiness or how well they're delivering the service. Um, so in SaaS, again, similar to a, a growing SaaS business being very sellable, part of the reason people like buying SaaS businesses is you don't have that immediate decline because customers shouldn't, in a good acquisition, customers shouldn't even really know the business has been, been acquired at all. Maybe you should announce it to them but it shouldn't affect their subscription. They shouldn't have to log into their portal and put in their credit card details again. That's not a good, that'd be a terrible acquisition and it wouldn't be anything you'd see anywhere near saying that FE is touched, hopefully. <laughs> um, so I think you've probably covered a fair amount of this already talking about uh, what a successful uh, successful. SaaS business factors that make up a, like an attractive SaaS business. Um, one thing that I constantly hear uh, people talking about M and A saying is that you should be thinking about this now. This shouldn't be. You shouldn't be thinking about uh, the option to sell your business in ten, five, ten years uh, down the line. Uh, this is something you should be thinking about immediately. So uh, the factors you've mentioned, not, not being overly dependent on a founder, having infrastructure to support that, um, and stickiness or, of a product. Um, and are those the things that you should really be focusing on, the, the real uh, nuts and bolts of the business, or, or are there other things that, people might not think about that that they should be doing to to prepare yeah i'd say i mean in general that's a, a good list i mean quite honestly yes you should be thinking about what a sale could eventually look like but that's really in terms of aligning your expectations so if 
and really saying what your goal should be because what your goal is will really determine what you do on a day-to-day basis if your goal is to build a 50 million dollar business in five years and you're going to bootstrap it or self-fund it you probably are need to get very lucky or work extremely hard to get to that level if your goal is only to get to say a million you probably still need to like work quite hard but you probably don't need to work quite as hard or set some big goals like you might need to in the 50 million deal so i say it's important to figure out what you're trying to achieve because that will help determine what you're like doing day to day um when you're starting out your focus should really be making money so generate some revenue find some customers get product market fit pivot if you need to get the business to a stage where it's profitable or at least could become profitable um if you eventually want to sell it um and then figure out where you want to get to. Because if you currently have a business today that's worth, say a couple of years in, you're doing well, your business is currently worth a million dollars, and you know that the number you want to sell is $10 million, you've probably got quite a lot more work to do to get to that stage where it's worth $10 million. But if you want to sell for, if your goal is to sell for $1.5 million, buy a house, pay off all your debt, and live a, live a nice life, depending where you live in the world, um, then you probably don't need to have the same like goals or targets. So I say that's the reason it's important to think about. It doesn't mean you have to sell in five years or you're a failure or you have to sell in 10. But you should definitely think about how that aligns with your life goals. So it's important to involve like the right people. Like if you're married, speak to your spouse. Kind of if you live for family, speak to your family. Whoever it is that's like a I guess a stakeholder in your personal life, it's important to involve them in that decision. Um, so like I said, if you're going to build a $50 million business or 10 million, any business, you're going to have to make a lot of personal sacrifice. So it's important that the important people in your life, whether it's husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, are on board with that and they know what you're trying to achieve. Because if you're just aimlessly, like my personal experience in my personal life, if you're just aimlessly going along and you don't know what you're trying to achieve, it's very difficult to get support from people when you're making the sacrifices if you're kind of at the moment I'm I'm not obviously but usually I'm on the road all the time I'm traveling half the year. I'm not at home. I don't see my wife very often. If she was not on board with what I was working on and what I was trying to achieve, then that would probably not end very well. Um so it is important to understand where you're trying to go and that will help you personally and professionally. And it does mean when you come to sell, you're not going to be surprised where you come to us and we tell you that the business you think is worth $10 million is only worth one because you've already been planning it, having conversations at the right time, bringing the right people in at the right time. And I would say, again, to repeat, if you're really early stage, so pre-revenue, you probably shouldn't even really be listening to this podcast right now. You should be head down, figuring out how to make some money and get some customers because the thing you do to start with will probably slightly pivot or change like it did for me I'm still effectively doing the same thing it's just positioned differently um and it's kind of gone more up market but for you it might be the other way it might go you might go down market you might go to the next market along there's no right or wrong way to do it you just have to actually get started and then adapt as you go do you think i'm describing it right to say that a a business that is attractive uh from from your perspective or from a buyer's perspective it is is just a good 
business the the things you've described a business that's growing consistently that has low churn customers are consistently getting value from the product and there's that go-to-market fit as well um those all to me sound like factors that you would typically just think of as okay that that's a good business anyway is it is it that common sense or or is that too dumb a representation of no, it? No, it's 100%. I mean, I guess the nature of what we do is can be technically very complex from a transactional perspective. Uh, like we have lots of accountants in our team and legal experts and, it's also, and industry experts. The transaction itself is very complex. And it's, I guess it's our job to do the complex parts and take the owner out of that process, which is why you hire us and you pay us in the first place but the actual concepts behind it are very simple. Like a good business is a good business and it will be sellable. A bad business probably won't be. It really is as simple as that. Uh, and then obviously we could then have a whole nother conversation about what is a good, what is a good business? What is a bad business? It does depend a little bit on the perception of the buyer. Um, but there's no situation where a profitable, growing business is bad. Some people might not like it, but that's, that's always a good thing. Yes, you could be growing faster. Yes, you could be more profitable. But that's always the case at any stage. But to, in my mind, it's as simple as, as you described it. It's a good business. It's sellable. And there's, there's really no more to it than that. It's not like you have to have a minimum level of revenue or a minimum level of or maximum level of churn or anything to be sellable. Like they are nice to have, but they're not. They don't fundamentally define what a a good sell, sellable business is. That was really interesting. What you said earlier about you seeing a real tight fit with churn and and the customer demographic, enterprise customers, um, just showing a way lower churn rate than freelancers and presumably B2C as well. Um, and I guess that makes sense. Like it's a, I know from 10 years in sales that it's a far harder sell. It's a much bigger barrier barrier to entry to, to make those deals. And, and so you'd, you'd expect them to, to be more, more sticky. Let's say you're not in that position where your product is built as an enterprise solution um and you're struggling with with churn what what could what could businesses do to uh who've got a degree of product market fit they've got some revenue uh there's a there's a clear need for what they're creating but that that stickiness isn't there they're struggling to get that go to market fit and from what you're saying it sounds like in a lot of cases that might just be because they're selling the, the wrong to the wrong person and they're they're not they're not pitching it at a high enough level are there things that people in that sort of situation could do to to improve that that go-to-market fit yeah i mean firstly it can be lots of different factors there's definitely not any like right or wrong way to know i mean you'll know more about your business than, than i do or any anyone else looking at a business can can tell you without any other information um so generally speaking, probably the number one factor is the type of customer you are attracting. And then there's also within a 
particular customer profile, so freelancers, I guess there are, let's keep it simple again, like good and bad freelancers. If you're targeting a freelancer who has been freelance for 15 years and making a six-figure income doing whatever, Mm -hmm. they are probably going to churn at a much lower rate than someone who has just quit their job and decided they they want to do some freelancing because they think it's a good idea. Um, Most people fail at running their own business, whether that's freelance or launching a business, because it's very, particularly in the in the US, it's very romanticized the idea of running a running a business, being your own boss. But the reality is most people can't hack it. They can't get up every day at whatever time they have to start. For me it's six AM every day. I'm ten years in. Most people don't don't want to do that. They think they do, but when it comes to it, they don't. So the I guess the the actual person you target within the specific space is important. And when you start out is easy to get a bit desperate and be like okay well there's a hundred freelancers who are just starting out let's give them a special deal like nine dollars a month whatever for my product which yes you might get 50 of them to sign up but they're going to send you the most support requests they're going to churn at the highest rate their credit cards are going to expire all sorts of issues so firstly figure out the right demographic make sure you're then targeting the right people within that demographic because it can be very, very broad. Uh, another big factor is then like how your pricing is is structured. Um, so test different pricing. And often, and this is definitely not always the case, but usually the higher the price point, the lower your churn rate is going to be, which sounds completely counterintuitive. Um, but if people are investing more each month in your products, even if it's, Let's say the free freelance, for example, they're paying nine dollars or forty nine dollars. They're probably more, they're paying forty nine. They're probably more likely to actually use your product day to day, and become quite reliant on it. So that's another real thing. It's like if your product is good and people are actually using it regularly, they're way less likely to to cancel. So a lot of it is just like how good your product is, which is saying that I can't really help you with how you price it is is important. Like I just mentioned um how good your customer support is i mean that's a really basic one it's probably in my experience a bit less important than you would think it's important to have customer service but like if someone's nine months into their contract and their freelancer work all just dried up they're going to cancel doesn't matter if you answer the support ticket in 25 seconds or 25 hours you're going to have the same end result the thing that is much more important that a lot of you will kind of completely forget about is onboarding we didn't put any focus on onboarding uh, so i don't know if you know aaron crowl um who runs the SaaS profax facebook group mm-hmm. he's basically built an entire business around coaching people how to do better onboarding it sounds kind of it's not really something that a lot of people talk about people like oh how you can a lot of other coaches talk about how you can do high ticket sales, how you can reach enterprises, that kind of stuff. But the reality is if you onboard people well and they start using your product, then they're probably not going to churn. The customers you churn are probably not actually using your product regularly enough or they never got onboarded properly. I know for us, like, there's a bunch of products that we probably have, probably shouldn't say this, but we have like 100 SaaS subscriptions. I'd say probably half of them no one in the team logs into any month 
So at the moment, we're having a bit of a, of a spring clean where we're going through and cancelling a bunch of products we never use. And generally what we found where there's the ones we're cancelling, it's not that it's a bad product. It's probably just that we never got onboarded properly. We never really set it up properly. It's quite easy to like log in, connect your email, confirm your account, put your credit card in, do the very basic thing that the product does, and then get distracted. Particularly if you're dealing with a busy business owner or manager or whoever it might be, like as much as you probably hate to realize it, your product is not important to them when they're starting out. So onboarding is really important. Um, so I've learned a lot from Aaron Crowell and stuff like that because he talks a lot about kind of onboarding and how you can kind of do that better. And that is really, in my mind, one of the most important things you can do to reduce churn, which again sounds kind of counterintuitive because most people think it's all about quality of customer support. But if someone's already at the stage where they've decided they're going to cancel, your customer support is going to make a marginal difference on that. And if anything, if you have a really proactive team who are like, oh, hey, why don't we have a chat about why you want to cancel before you cancel? You're going to annoy a lot of people. You're not going to build any, any goodwill. And just because someone's cancelling doesn't mean they don't like your product and doesn't mean they won't refer you other customers. We have lots of, not that we're a SaaS business, but we have lots of people who don't work for us who aren't a fit, but then refer friends or peers or whoever to us. Um, yeah, so I say onboarding is really important. That's probably the one main thing that people don't think about. Most first-time entrepreneurs spend all their time focused on product, which is obviously important. You have to have a good product, but probably not as important as onboarding. And then customer support. In reality, if you, if, you're, if you have a product that people like and your support times are a little bit slow, probably not going to cancel that product. Yeah, they might think it's a bit annoying and might not be delighted with it, but probably not going to cause them to cancel. Much more likely to cancel if, even if you reply immediately, if your onboarding sucks and they're kind of, your product has 50 things it can do and they're only using two of them. Mm. Like, that's what you need to, to focus on. Yeah, so I definitely recommend like looking up Aaron, checking him out. He has a bunch of like free stuff he's, he's put out there and it's a really good way to, it doesn't seem like it will help reduce churn, but it really will down the line. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, <clears throat> Mark Roberge from who's the ex sales director at HubSpot um, and responsible for growing their their customer success and sales team as well lays out <clears throat> something pretty similar and he actually looks at product market fit go to market fit and then growth as three the three separate stages for a business and and really hotly identifies that that go to market fit stage which is exactly what you're talking about where you may have paying customers but are they deriving value from from what you're creating are they are they churning are they using it on a on a regular basis are they using more than one feature and that'll look different for every business right so for dropbox that that might be sure share one file for 
for Slack, that might be have four members of your team using it and you have to identify that for, for each individual business. Um, but, yeah. but nailing that is a crucial first step. Um, and I would always advise that as well before you even look at hitting, really stepping up, hiring a sales team, stepping on the on the marketing spend and, and really doing that. Like that is, like you say, that is so crucial. Yeah, for, for sure. And like, like you say, it's usually just a really simple first step, like sharing a file or whatever. Mm. Just because you have 50 features doesn't mean they need to be using 50 features. You'll often find people are using your product for a reason you didn't even really realize was a, a core use case. It doesn't mean that they will cancel if they're not using every feature you have. So it's definitely something to think about, particularly if you're a, a developer or a programmer and you've built a product yourself. Mm. Often that demographic of business owner gets really obsessive over product and they're like, oh, but this user's using it wrong. I need to like teach them how to do it properly. <laughs> if they're if they're happily using it logging in every day and they onboarded themselves properly where they're getting value leave them to it it's not your job to tell them they are wrong so yeah i guess pick pick your battles as well and know where to focus it's probably not on the people who have already onboarded themselves and using the product even if you think they're doing it wrong or they're not they're not using the main feature you advertise that you think is the thing that's really important because it might not be Yeah, um, and constantly listening to to the customer and putting them forefront of of everything you do is yeah, for sure. It, it, it's it's a complete cliche, but it's uh, it's one that a lot of people probably listen to and, and pay attention to less than less than even themselves might might hope that they do. Yeah. So, final question, um, and this is one that. Uh, we want to ask uh, everyone that comes on the podcast um, because not just growing and and selling your your business is is important to us, but making a positive contribution to to change yourself, your team, uh, and the world around you um, is is just as important. Um, so I'm intrigued to know one thing that you've done recently that that's made a, a massive positive contribution to to yourself to your team or to the wider world oh that's a that's a very good very good question uh, <laughs> um we in san francisco locally as a company um we've started donating a lot more to like local charities um which is not saying that we necessarily so usually we never talk about this because I always feel like the charity, if you have to tell people about it, it's kind of defeats the purpose of doing it in the first place. Yeah. Um, but we've started contributing a lot, being a lot more conscious as an organization, uh, what we donate to and what we contribute to. Um, and I, I think as a company, there's not necessarily like a right or wrong way to donate or who you should donate to. I know a lot of companies use it as a PR thing, but we don't. I guess as a business owner, I feel quite privileged to be in a position that I am. Like we, we make money, we employ a lot of people. And I think that once you understand how privileged you are and you realize that one thing I know my business partner is like, we like working, we work a lot. If you want me to go volunteer my time and help out somewhere, that's not 
it sounds terrible, but it's not really something I can easily commit to, but with an element of like cash or an amount of cash, you can create a lot of a lot of good. Um, so that's what we've been doing recently, like long term. I think it's good to have, I guess if you look at kind of hierarchy of needs and what you're trying to achieve with your life, once you hit a relative level of success, you you can get fulfillment in lots of other areas. So for us, it's um, like charity and we've been trying to find, um, so for example, in the, the US, we've been donating to um, and contributing to some mental health charities, which focus on like mental health for entrepreneurs, uh, which I I guess it's saying that we see day in, day out, we work with lots of entrepreneurs, some who are very successful, some who are not very successful. Uh, and I'd say generally, regardless of how big someone's business is, there's basically no correlation between how big your business is and how happy you are. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of kind of, I think it's a very underfunded, feels like a very privileged thing to say, I'm aware, but feels like a very underfunded uh, and under-talked about Eric. He's like, oh, well, he's fine. He's got hundred employees his company made 20 million last year why does why does he need help or why would he be unhappy um so that's what we started to do recently like just as a as a company as a whole and i guess my business partner and i the things we kind of care about uh yes yeah, so that's saying for us we don't talk about it you don't see press releases saying here's me with a novelty check that's <laughs> definitely, definitely not me uh, but it's something we've been doing recently it's uh i think nice to do and you can guess with our relative success you can have a lot of kind of influence and you can help a lot of a lot of people yeah i completely agree ostentatious altruism is <laughs> is not altruism at all really yeah for sure um, no, no, i do really want one of those novelty checks but <laughs> no such luck well you'll have plenty of free time over the next few weeks to yeah. <laughs> get get crafting and uh put one together um if you want to drop the links to either of those organizations and and uh you want me to put them put them in the notes then sure yeah we have quite a few yeah. but i can send a send a couple across um otherwise should people want to reach out and and get in contact where's the best place to to do it yeah so best thing to do go to our website feinternational.com um on there you'll find if you want to buy a business you can check out what you can buy if you want to sell a business you can go there as well get we offer everyone a free valuation um we also if you're in the SaaS space we publish a free magazine called SaaS mag which is a print magazine you go to sasmag.com we're just about to send out the the latest edition of that so you can sign up and send you a copy for for free that's definitely worth reading we have some good interviews with lots of people um and then the, the team and me i'm super active on social media so you can find twitter facebook linkedin whatever you like feel free to reach out uh and if you want to email me it's thomas at fintnational.com um i'm usually like i said on the road all the time so email is usually not the best way to get me but if you mention this interview or this podcast and you have a particularly have a very specific follow-up question i'm more than happy to help if you reach out just give me a couple of days because i'm usually kind of knee deep in other work <laughs> awesome uh, i want to thank you personally for being the first ever guest on the SAS growth for good podcast cool well yeah thanks very much for having me and hopefully this is a, a good start
yeah phenomenal start i couldn't have hoped for a for a better first guest so thank you very much oh thanks rob